Chapter Six of Chemical Phenomena in Life by Frederick Chopik. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chemical Reactions in Living Matter. One of the chief characteristics of living matter is found in the continuous range of chemical reactions which take place between living cells and their inorganic surroundings. Without cease, certain substances are taken up and disappear in the endless round of chemical reactions in the cell. Other substances, which have been produced by the chemical reactions in living matter, pass out of the cell and reappear in inorganic nature as waste products of the life process. The whole complex of these chemical transformations is generally called metabolism. Inorganic matter contrasts strikingly with living substance. However long a crystal or a piece of metal is kept in observation, there is no change of the substance, and the molecules remain the same and in the same number. For living matter, the continuous change of substances is an indispensable condition of existence. To stop the supply of food material for a certain time is sufficient to cause a serious lesion of the life process, or even the death of the cell. But the same happens when we hinder the passing out of the products of chemical transformation from the cell. On the other hand, we may keep a crystal of lifeless matter in a glass tube, carefully shut up from all exchange of substance with the external world, for as many years as we like. The existence of this crystal will continue without end and without change of any of its properties. There is no known living organism which could remain in a dry resting state for an infinitely long period of time. The longest lived are perhaps the spores of mosses which can exist in a dry state more than a hundred years. As a rule, the seeds of higher plants show their vital power already weakened after ten years. Most of them do not germinate if kept more than twenty to thirty years. These experiences lead to the opinion that even dry seeds and spores of lower plants in their period of rest of vegetation continue the processes of metabolism to a certain degree. This supposition is confirmed by the fact that a very slight respiration and production of carbonic acid can be proved when the seeds contain a small percentage of water. It seems as if life were weakened in these plant organs to a quite imperceptible degree, but never, not even temporarily, really suspended. Life is, therefore, quite inseparable from chemical reactions, and on the whole, what we call life is nothing else but a complex of innumerable chemical reactions in the living substance which we call protoplasm. It must be one of the chief tasks in explaining chemical phenomena in life to study the different chemical reactions which take place in living protoplasm. Chemists working with lifeless material have as a rule to cause reactions by experiment, since the material does not undergo any change by itself. Comparatively few substances are readily affected by the water and oxygen contained in the surrounding air without the help of the experimenter. The biologist, on the contrary, may watch numerous chemical reactions which take place in living matter without his aid. It is, however, difficult to study chemical reactions in life in that way, because the single results cannot be distinguished or separated from each other. Results by far more exact are obtained when in an experiment we bring together the living organism with a certain substance to see what reactions are caused. So we may watch the favorable or unfavorable influence of this substance on the living cells, as well as the chemical transformation of this substance by the living organism, when we later on subject the organism to chemical analysis, or when we examine the products excreted by the living cells. A great number of the most valuable results were obtained by such methods, especially the gradual change of substances taken up into living cells by different reactions may be well studied in that way. 
The next step is to learn what kind of chemical means are available in living cells to produce such results. We have now to bring together the substance which we had examined in its reactions in living cells with other substances in vitro. So we see whether analogous influences may be exerted by some substances contained in cells or not. We compare the artificial reaction outside the organism with the vital reactions and are enabled to draw conclusions from our experiment for the chemical reactions in living protoplasm. Striking parallelism and resemblance are observed. Such results, however, are incomplete, and have been obtained only with certain groups of substances. During the last decades, biochemists have more and more aimed at the study of the total complex of the living cell after its death in its reactions to certain substances. The earliest experiments employed macerated tissue, or whole cells of microbes, under conditions which prevented decomposition by living bacteria. Salkowski, 25 years ago, allowed yeast to stand with water and some chloroform, that he might study the post-mortem transformation in this deposit of cells. It was shown that many of the contents of the living yeast cell undergo great change under such conditions, and new substances were found as products of such chemical reactions. Such chemical transformation in dead cells, where microbial decomposition is excluded, is called autolysis. Of late, very ingenious autolytic methods have been discovered. Instead of chloroform as an antiseptic, toluol is generally used, which liquid has scarcely any injurious effect upon the substances of the cell. But as Paladin of St. Petersburg has lately shown that even the grinding down does harm to many vital reactions, it is better to kill the living tissues by freezing and not to grind them. After having been frozen at 20 degrees, and having been placed in a glass with some toluol, the organs are brought back into room temperature. It is said that under such conditions more reaction takes place than when the material is ground down. We owe to Edward Buchner of Würzburg another remarkable method which has the advantage of permitting us to work with liquids without any particles of living cells, as in autolytic methods must otherwise always be done. Buchner recommends the material being ground down as finely as possible, and quartz sand or siliceous marl being added. The thick paste of cells and siliceous powder is then pressed out in a hydraulic press under a pressure of 300 to 500 atmospheres. In this way, all the cell sap is separated from the solid parts of the cells and contains but a very small quantity of cell fragments. Even these may be removed by filtering through a Chamberlain candle filter. The clear cell sap, however, still contains many substances which were hitherto known only in living intact cells. McFadden and Rowland proposed a very good amendment of this method. The living organs are brought together with liquid air and are very quickly frozen to stone-hard masses. Now they may easily be ground in the mortar. Before thawing, toluol is added, and this paste of cells is ready for autolytic experiments. These methods, highly developed as they are, are continually increasing in number and value. A considerable number of reactions are now separable from general cell life, and these reactions may be studied isolated from life. Such is the aim of modern biochemistry. Chemical reactions are bound by certain conditions. They may by some means be accelerated or diminished. The chief influences we meet with in the chemical laboratory are temperature, physical condition, separating, and mixing. Chemists are always ready to boil a test when they desire to accelerate the dissolution or reaction of a substance. It is a matter of common knowledge that chemical reactions are considerably hastened by a higher temperature. It is true 
that plants, as a rule, do not show a higher temperature than the temperature of the surrounding air. But there are remarkable exceptions. Bacteria have been found in rotting hay and other decomposing plant material, and also fungi, which produce a very high degree of heat, even as much as 60 degrees. Similar results were obtained with leaves which were kept in a chest carefully isolated to prevent loss of warmth. We may consider that heat is generally produced by plants, just in the same way as by warm-blooded vertebrates. But there are no contrivances in plants to keep the temperature at a certain point above the temperature level of their surroundings. From numerous experiments we learn that plants are in their vital functions adapted to a certain average temperature. Not a few tropical plants suffer from frost, and even die when the outside temperature falls below four degrees above zero. At the same temperature, on the other hand, many alpine and arctic plants have to perform all their functions in life. In tropical plants the fat of the seeds melts, as a rule, at a temperature of thirty to forty degrees. It is solid at the ordinary room temperature of fifteen degrees. European plants always show the melting point of their fat not far above zero. Daily observation teaches us that plant life develops considerably more quickly in a higher temperature. Growth, respiration, and the assimilation of carbon dioxide, as well as the phenomena of movement and stimulation, reach a much higher velocity and power in a temperature of 30 to 35 degrees than in one below 20, and by far higher than in a temperature below 10 degrees. The eminent Dutch chemist, Jacobus Hendrikus van Hoff, discovered the rule that chemical reactions are influenced by temperature with the result that the velocity of reaction is doubled or trebled when the temperature increases by 10 degrees. This rule, well known to chemists of our days as Van Hoff's rule or the RGT rule, is in practice applicable between the extremes of minus 50 and 300 degrees. Below and above these extremes, the quotient is larger than 3 or smaller than 2. It is of great interest to see that chemical reactions in plants strictly follow the same rule. F. F. Blackman and Miss Matei showed that the dependence of the carbon assimilation of leaves in sunlight upon the temperature is an exact example of Van Hoff's rule. Blackman stated the same for the respiration of plants. Canitz drew attention to many former observations of different authors which demonstrate quite sufficiently that the RGT rule is available for protoplasma streaming geotropism, longitudinal growth, pulsation of vacuoles in cells, etc. As well as the influence of temperature on chemical reactions, the influence of the physical condition of the reacting substances is an old laboratory experience. Corpora non agunt nisi fluida. The chemist is accustomed to dissolve the substance which is to be used in an experiment to react on other substances. The chemical course in living cells is the same. All substances destined for reactions are first dissolved. No compound is taken up into living cells before it has been dissolved. So the mineral salts of soil, the organic compounds when being digested by the leaves of drosera or other parasitic fungi, are dissolved before they enter further chemical reactions in the living cells. Digesting is essentially identical with dissolving or bringing into a liquid state. On the other hand, the chemist knows how to save a substance from chemical change by reactions by transferring it from the state of solution into a solid state. This is what is called precipitation. The solid, insoluble deposit of the substance now remains chemically unchanged. Metabolism in plants employs the same means. Substances which are to be stored up, such as starch, fat, or protein bodies, 
are deposited in insoluble solid form, ready to be dissolved and used whenever wanted for the life process. Further substances which are useless, or even poisonous, are easily withdrawn from the complex of chemical reactions in living protoplasm and form a solid, insoluble deposit. For instance, oxalic acid is a widespread product of oxidation in living cells which has strong poisonous properties. Oxalic acid immediately forms an insoluble compound when calcium salts are present. In reality, deposits of oxalate of calcium are most common in plant cells. We may then maintain that oxalic acid is in this way withdrawn from active metabolism. Resins and essential oils, in quite a similar manner, are isolated and separated from the other reacting substances in living protoplasm. To separate substances from each other by filtration or by shaking with suitable liquids is one of the daily tasks of the chemist. We must expect analogous processes to occur regularly in living cells. When filtrations are to be quickly finished, we have to use filters which have a large surface. In living protoplasm, this condition is very well fulfilled by the foam-like structure which affords an immense surface in a very small space. We have been told that fine membranes form the meshes of the network in protoplasm. These membranes have the functions of filters. We know already that they are not permeable for every substance. On the contrary, they dissolve and let certain substances pass through, whilst others are retained. In this way, a most perfect separation is reached, which may be compared with our best filtering contrivances. I may add that by adsorption, the plasma membranes retain numerous substances, which process is quite analogous to precipitation and elimination from other reactions. Finally, we have to mention the importance of procedures of mixing in chemical reactions. In ordinary laboratory practice, mixing is carried out by stirring. In living cells, there could not be any better contrivance for stirring or mixing than the streaming of protoplasm. There are many considerations which render it very probable that the real purpose and use of the streaming of protoplasm is the performing of this function. End of chapter 6